If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to a psalm we were in not that long ago, Psalm 34. When I was sharing with you on that particular occasion, I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. And let me remind you, in case you say, oh, that's great. I love that verse too, Psalm 34, 4. He delivered me from my fears. What God does, he doesn't simply just remove the fear. He says, now I'm going to show you there's nothing to fear. Go face it. So keep that in mind. I had one woman on my daily show, The Oasis, who was very serious about it. She, you know, she has some serious issues with anxiety. Plain out, tell me that she wouldn't do it. She wasn't going to face the things that she was afraid of. And I said to her, well, if that's the case, then your chances of overcoming your fears are not good. They're not good. Anyway, Psalm 34, let's take a look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. And here's our verse. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Verse 17 says, he delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 19 says, he delivers him out of them all, the afflictions, the troubles, and everything related to that. All. He delivers them out of them all. But the thing that we need to start with is the obvious, which is that God permits us to go through them. Again, if you were to write the Bible, if God had consulted you before he put this here into print, so to speak, this is not how you would write it. As I just mentioned, verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. The way we would have it is just simply taken out. Fear is just simply taken out, and all of a sudden, you're just not afraid of the incident, of the event, of the people, person, whatever it is. But that's not how God does it. God causes us to face our fears. And this is part of what we could consider an affliction, that we have to face the thing that we're afraid of, with the verse still ringing in our ears, perhaps from reading it, perhaps from hearing a message on it. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears, but it sometimes takes us by surprise that we're actually going to have to face the fear to find out that we're not afraid of it anymore. But if like this woman who wrote to me, a very nice woman, Christian woman, she just simply said, I can't do it, I won't do it. There's not much you can do to help a person at that point. And it's sad, but there's not much you can do to help a person who's just refusing to do what the scriptures say to do. I sought the Lord, he heard me, delivered me from all my fears, means you're going to have now face your fears because you believe that you're free from them, but you're going to find that the old you and the habits of the body and the brain are going to bring back that sense of anxiety as you face whatever it is you're afraid of. In other words, you have to apply the book. Look at my eyes just fell on verse 10, Psalm 34. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. I'm a fairly intelligent person. I do read the news. I know what's going on in the world. I hear people talking, and I'm talking about Christian people, about all of these different things, all the evil. And for me, I just interject these words, but God. And in some cases, you can sense that this is not really taking root in the heart. But God. And it just seems as though there's a kind of a, you know, a glaze on the eyes. 
Let me give you what I'm talking about. I'm hearing people say, I'm going to stores and things are you know, on the shelves. And we remember pictures of Argentina and other places where socialism took over. And that's what we're really talking about. We're losing the battle. The socialists are taking over. Well, first of all, in my opinion, they're not taking over. Not yet. And if we would do our job in winning souls, well, then God would once again give us a third great awakening. And I am praying that that's what will happen. But anyway... That's the connection. We see this. We see all these things around the world. Then a few things are missing on the shelves, and all of a sudden, we're in a disaster. That's the connection. But God. It says here, the young lions are going to lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord will not want for any good thing. That's what it says. So now we got a choice. What do we believe? And I will remind you of my position. I don't know the choice. I can't say that I don't believe everything I hear on the news. I just don't believe a lot of it. I don't believe a lot of it, and you would be wise to do the same. In any case, if lions are going to lack, God created lions. Paraphrasing, then he says, but for my people, they're not going to want for any good thing. It doesn't mean you're going to get everything you want. It just means that whatever you need, God will supply. Amen. Philippians 4.13, verse 19, rather. He says, for my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ. He shall supply. How did the Apostle Paul or David know that? Did they have some kind of plan, some major undertaking, the New York Times number one bestseller on how you're going to always have everything? No. They had one thing. They had God. If you have God, and I have no reason to doubt that you sitting here do, then this promise will be yours, predicated upon this one thing, if you can believe. Because we see an example, one example, with one of Jesus' own apostles, Peter, who is doing miraculous things as far as walking on water. When Jesus called him out of the boat, he's walking on water, and then all of a sudden he realizes, I can't do this. This is impossible. What am I doing out here? And the waves, by the way, which the King James says, the Bible says, boisterous. So he's getting splashed with winds and waves, and then fear entered his heart. He stopped believing the Lord, and immediately he sunk. And so he did what we should do in those instances. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus, thankfully, didn't say, okay, you're now going to need to take a 16-week course on faith and all that, because it would have been too late. Jesus reached down his hand, and he pulled him back up, and he says, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Now, don't you tell me, because I was going to ask a question, but that's going to be ridiculous. Don't you tell me that you don't have moments of doubt. Don't you tell me that you don't live occasionally at least by what you're seeing, what you're reading, and your favorite expert in, in media and journalism and books and all these intellectuals and stuff. Don't tell me from time to time you don't believe. They put a thought in your head and say, hmm. But God, this is what God has said. I mean, that's if you really actually believe this book. But I have found in four and a half decades... I've never seen, I've never experienced anything where if I held my faith, if I didn't waver, if I didn't do as Peter did and others, God always came through, always. And he makes you wait, and that's the testing part. That's the hard part. In a sense, that's added to your affliction. The fact that God doesn't always show up immediately. That's what we want. That's what we prefer. We want God to show up when we want him to show up. For instance, pain, emotional pain, uh, physical pain, of course, you know, uh, and physical pain, I think, is a little bit different. Anyway, we always want immediate relief. Well, that's natural. There's nothing abnormal about wanting immediate relief. But the problem is that God doesn't always show up immediately. And it's in that in-between space that we have to decide, do we really believe this? Do we really believe this? And if you say, Lord, I believe this, and the waiting continues. Hmm? And the waiting continues. 
And sometimes even the winds pick up a little bit more. And there's this, in a sense, this little voice in your head that's saying, do you still believe? Do you still believe? I saw a cartoon. It was a picture of Humpty Dumpty. Remember Humpty Dumpty? It was a picture of Humpty Dumpty. And on either side of him was a smaller egg. You know, one was a regular egg and one was the kind with the filling in it, you know. Humpty Dumpty's looking over the wall and the one egg is saying to him, don't do it. And the one with the uh, yolk and the filling in it is saying, hey, go for it. Then the caption underneath the cartoon said, Humpty Dumpty regretted listening to the deviled egg. (laughs) (laughs) We all have these voices coming in the head, you know. Don't do it. It's God's word. And over here, the devil's saying, go for it. Or just reverse it. God says, trust. And the devil says, give up. You're lost. There's no hope. And then you go through this whole thing. The will has got to make a decision that we actually believe this, even though God, as I mentioned to you so frequently, seems as though he's late. And we know, of course, he's not late. But it seems as though he is late. He causes us to wait. And it says, those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. It's not even so much in the waiting part. It's when the season of refreshing comes. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when it comes, it's a tree of life. When it comes, not if it comes, it's when it comes. Hey, listen, one of the things that I've been mulling over in my own mind and sometimes speaking to people too, we need to see the power of God in this generation. We need to ask the Lord, where is the Lord God of Elijah? As Elisha did. Where is the miracle working power? Where is the God that comes through? Well, God hasn't changed. Neither has Satan, of course, but neither has human beings and human nature. God has already stated, if we waver, if we doubt in all of this, you're not going to get an answer. Read the first chapter of James. So we shouldn't be surprised that we see so little inside the church, even though there's extravagant claims as to what God is actually doing. I've been around long enough to know not everything you're hearing, even from pulpits, is accurate or true. However, we read the book and we see God has always come through for his people, Israel, church, individuals. But in between, there's this test, this testing, and it's frequent. We're going to see these words in just a minute. These tests come frequently, and it's what you do right then with that. As you wrestle, as it was with Jacob at Peniel, as you wrestle, do you let go when the angel says, let go? Do you walk away when Jesus said, it's not right for me to give children's meat to dogs? Or do you hang on and say, wait a second. Yeah, but even the dogs get the crumbs, and I'm not leaving here until I get something. And Jacob said, I'm not letting go until you bless me. And they wrestle all night long. See, this is a pattern in the scriptures. We want immediate relief and comfort, and then we go our way. And what do we do, by the way? We forget about our commitment to God. We forget about these things. But if you won't waver then the promises of God will come through and they will come true in their time as we are operating on God's timetable, whether we like it or not. I, for one, do not approve of God's timetable. I think his math is a little off, but he's God and he's the one that says, my math is not off. I will be there when I determine to be there. In the meantime, as Jesus said to Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe I'm going to raise your brother from the dead? Well, on the last day, sure, you know, mm, you believe that when I walk to that grave today, I'm going to raise him from the dead. This is what's the question for us who profess to believe in God, to believe in Christ. Is God going to show up? In my mind, he always shows up. And I want to repeat this again. No discipline for the moment we read in the scriptures seems to be joyous. Nobody's, nobody's happy when they're being disciplined and chastened. 
and trained, if you will. But at the end, we read in the scriptures again, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That righteousness leads to peace inside you, peace in your body. Make sure if you're following a leader, I'm not referring to myself, I'm referring to Christ. Make sure if you're following a leader, make sure it's Jesus. Make sure it's Jesus. Next election, vote for Jesus. He's the only one we can actually trust in my view. By the way, just a little parenthetical statement here. I'm literally getting sick of all the claims by all the politicians for for all the centuries. We get him in, it's going to change. We don't know which way it's going to change. And I still think that this is God's test, here in America at least, it's God's test to say, who are you really trusting to change this country? Where are the prayer meetings? Where are all the people crying out? Where are all the people crying out? Because we thought that all we do was go to the booth and boom, we got our guys in and we're good to go. And that's not true. Period. I don't care what party they belong to. I don't care what they espouse. It's not true. It's not true that you trust in the flesh and it works out right. I mean, just generally speaking, especially when it comes down to the national, international level, we must have our trust totally in God. You vote your conscience, of course, but that's your prerogative, however people vote. But here we trust in God that God is not a answer. He's the only answer. He's the only answer. Now, if you look at the 19th verse, it says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. This is not the way we wrote the Bible. Who changed it? The righteous don't have afflictions. You live a righteous life, everything goes smooth. Everything goes easy. Life, if it's just the fruit is just literally falling into your hands all the time. You stuff your pockets with blessings. And that's how it goes. You speak the one word or whatever, you know, just things happen. Unfortunately... That's not what the book says. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivereth him out of them all. I like the second part better than I like the first part of that verse. And I think if God would take my advice, he should amend the Bible and he should edit it quite a lot and just delete the first half of the verse and just say, God's always delivering you. Don't worry about it. You won't have any afflictions. My guess, though, is God is not going to take my advice. That's just a guess. And he's going to leave it stand just the way it is. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. That means we're going to have trials and tribulations, but be of good cheer, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. I was thinking of a story during the Napoleonic Wars when Napoleon, of course, was trying to conquer the world as others have done in the past. And by the way, none of them have ever been successful. We've had, you know, kingdoms, of course. But no one, had, somebody could set out to conquer the world. But God vetoes it and said, no, you're not the one. Now, there will come a time, as we know, him as the Antichrist in here. But it's for a brief period of time. And again, it's for a test, as we read that as the word in the book of the Revelation, but in any case, you know, people can say they're going to conquer the world, Hitler with another one, and it don't work because it's vetoed by God himself. No. And take comfort in that. These poor people in the Ukraine, you know, you're seeing all the pictures that I'm seeing. Uh, first of all, I admire them. I'm watching a young 20, she, uh, she looked at me as she's in her 20s, walking right in front of an armored vehicle. The Russians are coming and she's walking across the street. She's taking her time. But I admire brave people. I really do. In any case, what's going to happen there, only God knows. I don't know. I'm not an expert in foreign policy and all these things. But I do know what the general plan is. Because God has taken you and me into his confidence when he wrote this book. And he says, this is how it's going to go. 
And of course, we've covered Bible prophecy eschatology here quite a bit. You are aware that Russia, as I mentioned before, Russia and China are in Bible prophecy. America, some people say yes. I don't know. I have, I've not seen it clearly. But we know for certain Russia and we know for certain China are in there. And what they're going to do, they're going to converge. Our ultimate goal will be Israel. But it's unfolding day by day. And God took us into his confidence to say, here, I wrote it in a book for you. Read it. And, of course, apply it. So here's Austria during the Napoleonic Wars. It's Easter Sunday, and the ministers and the people of the town, small town, are getting together for services. But the entire city is surrounded by a massive number of Napoleon's troops. They're going to attack. Kind of similar to what we're seeing right now. They're going to attack. A couple of the ministers got together, talked to the people as well as what they're going to do. Well, they had no might to fight this great army. So what they decided to do is just go on with service and let's just worship the Lord. And I guess the conclusion was when we get wiped out and killed, we get wiped out and killed. But at least we're in service worshiping the Lord on Easter Sunday. So as the habit was, we don't have that so much anymore, though I wish we would go back to it. The ringing of the bells, alerting the town, service is about to begin. Love those bells from way back. I truly do miss them. As they began to ring the bells, the armies made the assumption that the Austrian armies had come, and they couldn't conquer them, and they all fled and left. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to read a very similar story. And I want to emphasize to you the word many. Again, I think this would be <laughs> difficult enough if God says, you're going to have a couple of afflictions in your Christian walk. And I'd say, oh, come on, God. I had enough trouble before I came to you. But he didn't say that. It got worse. He said, many, many. If you look with me at 2 Chronicles chapter 20, let me read beginning at the first verse. that It says, it came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon, their descendants of Lot, and with them other besides the Ammonites. So now we have a kind of a similar scenario to this story from Austria. Came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Well, this is again not supposed to happen. Hey, we're Israel. We're the chosen. We're the elect. But it happens. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat, now listen, read this word carefully if you have your Bible open. And Jehoshaphat feared. Now here again, believers in God are not supposed to fear. This should help you out for those of you who do struggle with anxieties and depressions. Christians are not supposed to be depressed. According to books written by people who don't really know much about the subject. It's quixotic. It's not true. Christians are afraid at times. Everybody is afraid at times. But we conquer the fear. Depression is the same thing. It's untrue. Once again, it is just a myth. It's a fable that Christians aren't depressed. It's in that depression, by the way, that we read in the book of Ecclesiastes that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting because in the house of mourning, the countenance is made better. In any case, Jehoshaphat feared. He's a king. He's not supposed to fear, but he did. And he set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. I'm just imagining they must not have had voting machines and primaries and all that in that day. That's the only thing I can come up with because who goes to prayer? Come on. We got to do something here. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? He is. 
So I'll answer these rhetorical questions. And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? He does. And that includes Russia and China and the United States. He is ruling over the kingdoms. Not the people who think they're ruling over the kingdoms. Nothing. A drop in the bucket. God speaks a word, that's it. Boom, gone. Not just individuals, over the whole nations. And rulest thou not over all the kingdoms of the heathen? Those are unbelievers. Those that have no faith. They're atheists in some of these countries. There's no God. Now you're going to find out in the future that there is. And he's been ruling over your country since the day it began. God. And in thy hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? And the answer is yes. No one can withstand God. Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend, forever? The answer to that is yes. And just to say this, if you notice, if you take out a map that was made in the 18th century, it would be very safe. 19th century would work too. Take out a map and look over there, and you'll see a 19th century map will say Palestina. And if you were to go there in a time machine, what you would see in the land is nothing. I mean, it was literally a barren wasteland. Now we forward to our time, and now take out the map, and what do you see in Palestina's place? It says Israel. And it's abounding. Why? Because God said he would take the bones, the dead bones, and he would put flesh on them. And that he has a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Of course, David, you've got a covenant with the land and all of these things. God is fulfilling his word. And they built therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name. This goes back to Solomon when he built the temple. And this was his prayer, Solomon's prayer. If when evil cometh upon us, wait a second, hold on. Evil doesn't come to good people. It doesn't come to the land of the people of God. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in America. It doesn't happen any place. Any preaching like that is not only unintelligent and uninformed. It's unbiblical. It does happen to the people of God. If when evil cometh upon us as the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, there's our word, then thou wilt hear and help. And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab, remember again they're the descendants of Lot and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldst not let Israel invade. If you go back into the book of Deuteronomy, and you look through the history. God said, don't touch the Moabites. Don't touch these people. Let them be. Now keep that in mind. Because what's coming up is important. Relevant to the God. said, don't touch them. Leave them alone. And they did. Let me read it again. <clears throat> and now behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. You said don't attack them, which God didn't say that to every nation. He said, take them out of the way. Take them out. And but say, leave the Moabites and the Ammonites and so on. He says, now look how they pay us back. You told us not to kill them and destroy them and go to war with them. Now look how they pay us back. Let me say something to you. This thought came to my mind as an example, because you've had the same apple out of this bucket as well. I remember when I had my open heart surgery some years ago now, as I was convalescing in my home for the few weeks that I was out of here, this pulpit, my living room was filled with cards. I mean, literally filled with cards. All over, all over the place. Filled, the living room was filled with cards. Many of them from people I only know casually. But what was really sad was how many people I really helped in times past never bothered to send me a card, never bothered to send me an email, nothing. 
What do you think goes through your head? Let me tell you something. I'll tell you right now. When you're in trouble, when you're in affliction, when you're down, you remember the people who helped you, and you remember the people who didn't. I'm not trying to make you bitter. I'm not bitter. I've actually prayed for a lot of these people. I remember one guy, a minister, who when I met him was literally on Christmas Eve eating from a can of beans, and I did a lot to help him. Not one card, not an acknowledgement. And a few other things I could add, but that will just distract us from the story. I know what this is like. You know what this is like. Look how they're treating us now. And David knew what it was like too when he said, it wasn't an enemy, it was a friend that did this to me. Okay, all right, it's all good. Because what you sow, you reap. It's just a matter of time. Verse 11 again, Behold, I say, how they reward us to come cast us out of thy possession which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? Now here's the thing. Here's what Josh Hoshvetz, that's why he's afraid. For we have no might against this great company that cometh up against us. We're out of strength. Now I'm going to ask you this question, and you're going to say to me, Oh, Pastor Ray, not me. Are you ever out of strength? And you're saying, not me. I'm always strong. Liar, liar, pants on fire. You're telling me you're always strong? Well, you're not like me because I'm not always strong. Sometimes I'm so incredibly weak. I'm like an ordinary man. That's the truth. Okay, that went over your head. Um, You're slow, but you're worth the wait. Um, Don't tell me that you're not weak. Don't tell me that you don't go through periods of depression, anxiety, wondering what's going to happen when God lays out empty space in front of you, except for one thing, his word. And you take a deep breath, and you say, wow, I don't know, you said, you know, it's like the story, here's a guy, he, whoo, he tumbles off a cliff, right? He's on his way down, there happens to be a branch sticking out, and he grabs a hold of that branch, can't get back up. He can't let go because he's too far down to the ground underneath of these incredible craggy rocks. No, he just does what any of us would do. He starts to cry for help. Help! A voice comes out and says, I will help you. Let go. And the man says, he looks down, he says, let go. He says, who is this? He said, this is God. Let go. He looked down again. He looked back up. He said, is there anybody else up there? Because that's what God requires of us. Let go. Good book for you to read. It's a very thin book by a Catholic bishop written many, many centuries ago, a few centuries back. It's called Letting Go by Bishop Fenelon. In any case, that's basically what God says. Let go of it. But we'd like to hold on tight. And God says it's not going to work that way. Let go. Let go. Jehoshaphat says, I'm out of strength. I don't have anything left. Have you ever heard the expression, gassed? I'm gassed. I'm out of strength. And I tell you the truth, don't you even try to tell me that you're not gassed from time to time. I know better. God has a way of squeezing you like a wet towel. By the way, I have discovered over the many years that being in Satan's grip is one thing. Being in God's grip is something totally different. The oppression, uh, or the pressure, I should say, oppression on one hand, the pressure on the other, of God, it's inescapable. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? Verse 12 again. For we have no might against this great company that cometh up against us, that cometh against us. Then he says this. Neither know we what to do. So they're praying, but that's doing something, isn't it? They already had the Torah. They had the temple. But he says, we don't know what to do. Now I'm going to ask you this again. No, I'm going to ask it as a favor. Please don't tell me you always have an answer. Please don't tell me that. Don't even start. Don't tell me, oh, I don't know, Pastor Ray, I thought you were kind of smart, but me, I've always got the answers. Well, I'm not going to listen to you. 
Because I know that that's not true in anybody's case, starting with Jehoshaphat. We got the scriptures, but sometimes we know what the scriptures say. We just don't know what to do. What do we do? You know how many times I'm asked over the years, Pastor, what do we do? Or my wife says, you know, what are we going to do? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I truly really don't know. I mean, I know to pray and I know to believe, but the details of what steps to take, I don't know. But if my eyes are on him, well, that's what I want to read to you. Our God, will thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh up against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. I've told you this before, and you would know it too if you have a faithful dog. My dog is constantly looking at me. I mean, it can be actually irritating sometimes. He's watching me so much. If I so much as roll in the bed, woof, he's over to the side of my bed. Which, by the way, you don't want to come in my house if he's not secure. This is a big East German shepherd. I mean, he's constantly watching me. Because he knows I'm alpha. I'm the alpha wolf. And he's looking for instructions. What do we do? Everything okay? You all right? You want to play? You want to go fight somebody? What do you want me to do? (laughs) And often when I look at him and watch how he watches me, I say, this is how I need to be watching God all the time. God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord and their little ones. Picture the scene. Little children, wives, children, families. Again, somewhat like we're seeing in the Ukraine. What do we do? We don't know. We don't have any strength. But we're looking at you, God. We're looking at you. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Madaniah. And by the way, when you read these names in the Bible, aren't you glad your name is Ray? <laughs> of Levite, of the sons of Asaph, came and the spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hear ye, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid which he was, we read it, nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. If you stand in the Lord, what you're fighting today is called evil, and that's God's battle. This is God's battle. That's why we have to remember the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, because this is God's battle. When we look at Jesus and his apostles, it says that they went out laboring, and the Lord was with them, but they were actually laboring for the Lord, in the Lord's purpose, in the Lord's kingdom, in his vineyard, and so on. That's what we are doing. We are in and under the Lord's purpose in his kingdom, and we must do what he says to do. For the battle is not yours, it's God's. Let me tell you, well, of course, if I was with Jehoshaphat there, that would have been a tough one for him to come back, or this prophet to say, don't worry about it. God's going to fight for you. And you know, there's a million people. Well, how are we going to do this? What are we going to do? Let's have a meeting. Let's get a vote. We don't even like you as the pastor anymore. Get us somebody in. Someone knows what to do. Forgive me. I'm sublimating my own frustrations with politicians. Everybody's up there now stumping. I don't believe it. Amen. I don't believe it. I know that God is fulfilling his book. I know that God is fulfilling prophecy. I'm not inclined to believe people. That, well, if I was there, I would, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah, okay. Maybe. And maybe not. Because pride goes before destruction and the Holy Spirit before a fall. And I, for one, do not want to be fooled that there's any other Savior than God himself. I am the Lord. I am the Savior. Is there any other Savior, any other God beside me? God says, I don't know of any. If he don't know of any, that's good enough for me. That there is no other Savior but God himself. So you're hanging on by your little hands there on that little stick. And God's saying, let go. And you're saying... I won't let go. No way. Who else is up there? 
You got the bishop, and you got the preacher, and you got the congregation, and the deacons, and the elders, and the first church in the first city. And they're all saying, well, you know, we can work this out. Get a rope and all this stuff. And God's saying, "Mm mm-mm, let go. Letting go isn't easy for some of us here, especially if you're a responsible person, what have you. Letting go is just not an easy thing to do. And I'm not saying that we should be out of control. I'm just simply saying there are many things that we just need to let go and continue to trust God and do what he said to do, not do what he said not to do. And the battle becomes the Lord's. Charles Spurgeon, the preacher, the great preacher, the 19th century preacher, he once said this about afflictions. He said, it is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. And that's 19th century, of course. That's what the psalmist wrote too. Some say to me, there's no hope for you in God. And that's exactly where we are right now in history. Well, at least American history. Well, not just American. Look around the world. Trust in God. It's not an easy thing to do. Don't let anybody fool you that having faith in God is easy. It's not easy. It's easy when nothing's going wrong. It's easy when there's no afflictions. Yeah, sure. Life is great. Life is good. Then you get pressed and pressed and pressed and pressed. And then Napoleon's army or the army of the Moabites and the Ammonites and Mount Seir and all that are all really there against you. And somebody says, just trust God. That's when it gets difficult. When your back is truly up against the wall and the forces keep on coming. The forces just keep on coming. And you have to say, God, I don't know how, but I know you're in this. I don't understand the details. I rarely understand the details of my own life. But I say, and I told this to my wife the other night too, and we've had many you know, low moments and low periods of our life. I said, I can't explain this, but and I gave her an instance from 30 years ago. I said, you remember that time when I told you I don't understand this all, but God is in it? Well, God is in it. God is in it. And God is not out of control. And then it gets down to believing it or not believing it. There is the most bitter of all afflictions, Spurgeon said once again, is to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. Look at the word, if you're back here with me, at Psalm 34. Let's look at these words very quickly. Many. It means more numerous than. Your neighbor has problems. You're trusting in the Lord. Yours are doubled. Why? Because you have the ordinary problems that everybody has. Then you have the burden of having to read the pastor's emails. It says, should be in church Sunday. Oh, you know. Okay, fine. You know, hey, well, I'm not a city dog catcher. Let me speak for myself. I'm going to bed last night, and I'm saying, I'm so glad it's church tomorrow. <laughs> I'm so glad. I really am. I said, oh, good. Tomorrow's church. I get to see the brethren. I get to preach the word. We get to pray. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I don't know what people are thinking. I don't know what they're doing. I truly don't know what's going through their mind. But for me, to be amongst the brethren and to be encouraged and just to hear an amen, to hear your voices while we're singing, is a pleasant thing to me. In this present evil world. Many are the afflictions. More abundant than is what the Hebrew word means. Then look at the word affliction. I want to give you the definition here. Well, unhappiness and misery. But that's not... Come on. We're people of faith here. I thought you were a faith teacher. I am a faith teacher. But I'm a real one. I read from the text. I live in a nice house, but it's not a compound. I drive a nice car, but it's not, you know, top of the line of... You can't even name the cost of it type of a car. Unhappiness, misery, displeasing, bad in value, worse than, similar to many, worse than, sad and unhappy, evil. That's all the definition of this Hebrew word for affliction. And not in this modern church, never merely associated with a walk of righteousness and a walk of truth. But it's in the book, so it is true. 
Many are the afflictions of the righteous. We need to talk about this a little bit here. Of righteousness, Charles Allen, a pastor who wrote one book that I read years ago, God's Psychiatry, very good book. It's on the Sermon on the Mount, and it's on Psalm 23 and one other. He wrote that it's not hard to reach bad people because they know they're bad. That may not always be the truth or accurate, but he says it's the self-righteous people that are hard to reach. You know what I discovered when I came up from New York City 35 years ago? When I was in the prisons, I'd have massive altar calls. And, you know, basically in New York, it's black and it's white. When I came up here, I found out, forgive me for the expression, because I've been here longer now than I had lived in New York. Just a bunch of good old boys. I told you the letter I received some many years ago when I made mention about sin and sinners and all that, and someone wrote to me, an anonymous letter from my own congregation. Don't you call us New York City sinners? I never said they were New York City sinners, but what I did do is take that paper to the pulpit that Sunday and read it out loud. It was sent anonymous. I made it public. And I said, whoever wrote this, and I actually knew who wrote it, I said, you have an idea that people in New York City are sinful and you're just a bunch of good old boys? You better think again. When the Bible says all has sinned, all have sinned, that included up here. If I fell out my bedroom window back in the day, I was in the Bronx. That's the truth. I mean, it was that close. I mean, you're talking about on the city line. If I fell out the bedroom window, which was close a couple of times, I'd be in the Bronx. Don't you tell me there's a difference between sinners in the Bronx and Yonkers and sinners in Amsterdam and Johnstown. Are you kidding me? All have sinned. All need Christ. All need God. All. That includes Schenectady and Troy. So clear. And so how did we get to become righteous? Look at me, all I've done for God. Look at me, all I've... No, 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 no. Romans 3, 21 through 24, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Listen, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Freely, freely. And I shared this a little bit last week, so I want to accent it again. So we can say we are righteous in Christ Jesus through the blood of Christ and all the things that we have, but it's not our righteousness. So I remind you all the time when I talk about this, treat each other right, because you are no better. Well, you may be a little smarter than somebody who attends your church, but you're no better. And there's a huge difference between being smarter and better. We are all here the same. Start with me. We're all here the same, all the same. In my case, okay, you know, smarter than most of you, okay. (laughs) But I'm not better. And you're no better than me. All right, so we're righteous. Let me go back to something I said earlier. Name all the problems we see with the technology, but God. Name all the problems we're seeing right now in Eastern Europe, but God. The problems that we're seeing in America, but God, and I would just, this is another little opinion, you don't have to agree with me. I'm really not sure, people ask me, like, what do I think about the truckers blocking bridges and all that? I don't know. I mean, at some point, you gotta, there's a tipping point, you gotta fight back. I don't know if what they're doing is right. I, I just don't know. I truly don't. And when I read accounts from, as they talk, I, I'm not really sure what the agenda is, particularly, but God. There's still God. There's still God, but God. Name any problem that you want, but God. But God. I've never looked up the word but, I mean with one T, B-U-T, ever before in my whole life. I always assumed I knew what it meant, and I was right, but I just wanted to read it to you. The word but, B-U-T, means except for the fact. Except for the fact. 
Oh, this is a problem. Except for the fact that God exists and God is omnipotent and God is benevolent and all the other things that we know about the nature of God. But God. But God. It also means on the contrary, on the other hand. Oh, we're in trouble. But on the other hand, the right hand of God. Another quick story. A man in my church, his name was Lenny from Jamaica. When I used to preach, he'd be pacing back and forth in the back. He'd be going like this all the time, just raising up his hand while I was preaching. It was an encouragement to me because nobody else could see him, but I could always see him. He had a son that was very depressed and suicidal. He lived in Co-op City, for those of you who know where it is. And I forget what floor it was, but we could put it up around the 15th floor. So it's high up. And as he's talking to his son, his son just went, and just jumped out the window. Right in front of him. Lenny just screamed, the right hand of the Lord, the right hand of the Lord. The boy, who was young at the time, went down 15 stories, hit the awning on the front of the building, and he went around the awning. When he hit the ground, the only thing he had was one broken nasal bone. Why? Because there's a God. But God. That don't happen all the time. But Lenny was a man of God. The right hand of the Lord. And down as this young man plummets, he hits the awning, chings, and he spins around like you've seen in movies. When he hit the ground, maybe seven or eight feet, whatever it was, ten feet. <clears throat> After that, he just broke one little nasal bone. But God. But God. Well, we have a lot here, and we ran out of time. He delivers us. Hey, you know what? Everybody else is delivering. God started to deliver. <laughs> I got it backwards. God was delivering long before anybody else was delivering. You know, maybe some of you do it. You know, you used to go shopping, now you just call up and you say, this is what I want, bing, bam, boom, boom. Now, before you know it, they're at your door with your groceries. But it's tough in America, believe me. It's hard to live like this. Hard, hard, hard. Hard, hard, hard. Well, God was delivering long before the grocery stores were. He'd come into your room. He'd come into my bedroom when I was saved, where I was saved. He'd come into the hospital room. He'd go into the prison. God can go anywhere, walk right through the wall. Because he's God, and he delivers. And when he delivers, he sets you free. Whom the Son sets free is truly free. Free indeed. Let me read a couple of verses, and I'll finish today. Joshua, here he is with Moses and all these promises, this constant controversy, this constant argumentation. Uh, Moses, what did you do? We should have died in Egypt. Then they die right there anyway. And, you know, God was judging and telling Moses, well, I'll make a new nation of you. No, God, don't make a nation of me. It was like your life, like mine. Chaos, complaining all the time. Finally, they go to spy out Canaan. Twelve spies come back even with the grapes. And the ten say, well, you know, it's a good land, but we can't conquer that land. Giants, big cities, walled cities, lots of obstacles. And Joshua, who I'm going to read to you now, Joshua comes back and says, they're bread for us. How can two people in the same church have two totally opposing views? I'll tell you how. Unbelief and faith. Amen. Two totally opposing views, unbelief and faith. Well, yeah, it's a good land. God was right on that one, but we can't do this. Now the families of the ten, the whole, in fact, the whole nation, they're all crying and weeping. <laughs> Nobody believes Joshua and Caleb. So from 20 years on and upward, God says, none of you will ever see the land. None. You're all going to die in the wilderness. So go take a 40-year walk, which is what they did. And then it was the little children that went in. So now Joshua, you know, he's telling the people, okay, we're going to conquer the land. Now he's in charge. That's a big job too. But now at the end of Joshua's life, Watch what happens. 
Joshua chapter 21, verse 45. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. Remember, his friends, the guys he went in with, they never saw that. Joshua 23, verse 14. And behold, now this is Joshua speaking. And behold, this day I'm going the way of all the earth. So he's dying. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you. And not one thing hath failed thereof. Not one thing. See, the man of faith, Joshua, he had afflictions. Who painted this picture of living a life of faith says, this is so smooth and easy? Well, the Bible didn't, and God certainly didn't. In any case, Joshua tells them, you know yourself in your heart and your soul, nothing of what God said would happen has failed to come to pass. It's all come to pass. And I'll submit to you that if we can remain faithful and we'll remain faithful, and keep this in mind, what I just said, in the same congregation, I don't mean 15 churches in one city, within the same sanctuary, you could have people saying, we can't do that, we can't accomplish that, that'll never happen. We're not strong enough, there's walled cities, and maybe a minority, well, I won't push it too hard with the percentages, but they'll say, the bread, we got God. We got God on our side. You know, our elder here is always reminding us that all that God has supplied. 16 years we've been in this building. We have not wanted one good thing. We need a door, we get a door. I got the picture in my office of us burning the mortgage. The man who held the mortgage himself, a Christian, said, I didn't really think you guys could do it. Done. Because pastor is so smart. But God, because God is faithful. He's tested us. But he's still faithful. We've had leaky roofs. We've had all kinds of issues. But God still comes through, and he will come through. And I'll tell you this. You know that one of my favorite figures in modern Christian history is George Mueller. If you haven't read his autobiography, read it. Read his autobiography. It is amazing. He died when he was 92, almost 93. He was in ministry for a long time. He started ministering to orphans. He was determined that he would trust God totally, just through prayer. So now you have instances in George Muir's life, and again, if you haven't read his autobiography or his biography in general, read it. It's supper time. There's nothing on the table. He's got orphans to take care of. A car breaks down in front of the house, the orphanage. At first, there's 10, 20, 30, 40. At one point, he had over five, 6,000 orphans. That's a lot of people. They're all dependent on the leader, George Mueller, and his team. Oh, God, we thank you now for this meal. <laughs> Knock comes on the door. Guy comes and says, I'm delivering this to the butcher. It broke down. By the time I get there, it'd be bad. Why don't you give it to the kids? Why don't you give it to... It's hard to live like that. Praying over nothing. But God, he had recorded in his journal 50,000 specific answers to prayer. 30,000 of which came in the first day or the first hour that he prayed him. Now, I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm not trying to encourage you. How many of you can say, what happens to me all the time? First hour I pray, boom, it's done. Well, at least that day, 30,000 prayer requests. He took in, I mean, as far as, and that's just through prayer. It wasn't through, you know, telethons and all this stuff. Through prayer alone, what would be in today's currency, a half a billion dollars from prayer. Because God was saying to George Mueller, I am enough, I am sufficient. Now keep this in mind as I finish. That doesn't mean the life of George Mueller was an easy one. It just means that God is faithful. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. How many of you say, I know that by experience? No, I definitely know it by experience. But the Lord delivered him out of them all. And I was always, it gets down to one basic thing. 
You believe it or you don't. It's just that simple. Now realize what I just told you. Trusting God is not as easy as some preachers would have you to believe. See, they dress right, they speak right. Most preachers are articulate, they're intelligent. They know how to work a crowd. I'm not working a crowd. This is actually me. You either believe it or you don't. God is going to come through. Is it yes or no? It's not yes and no. It's yes or no. And then, in the meantime, you wait. And that's the hard part. Where are you gone? It's getting late. That's the hard part. 30 years. George Mueller prayed for a man, 50, 60 years it was, to be saved. Never saw it. And the man got saved at his funeral. In fact, even David's prayers were answered after he was dead. Because that's the faithfulness of God. Encourage yourself that your weaknesses, your anxieties, your depressions are average. They're average. You have them. I have them. Don't let anybody tell you differently. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Lord, today, encourage the hearts of not only the people sitting here, but those who are watching by the live stream, listening by way of radio, to put those two words into their life right now. But God, on the other hand, there's God who's still in charge of the universe. No matter what man is doing, no matter what people are saying, there's still a God who is in absolute, total control of everything in this universe, including human history. Bless your name, O God. Praise your mighty, matchless, and irresistible name. Great is the Lord. Greatly to be praised. Today, what are you going through? A depression and anxieties, uh, anxiety attacks. God can and I believe will do anything. Anything. We must believe. Lord, I pray for those here today that are ready to faint, ready to give up, ready to throw in the towel, ready to quit. That they would never quit. That they would never give up. That they would never give in. Oh, Father, encourage your church. Encourage the pastors, the heads of orphanages, the bishops, and the average Christian as well. Touch them, fill them, strengthen them. God, pour out your spirit. That we may say here in America and in the other countries also. Great movement of your spirit. A great movement of your righteousness. Judge the wicked. Judge the evil. Have your way, O oh God, in the earth. Protect the innocent. Oh God, pour out your spirit here in America that we may have a third great awakening. Fill up the churches once again. Fill the pulpits, God. Set them on fire. Set them aflame with your word. And help every single one of us to stand at our post. Be found where we should be no matter what the enemy is doing. No matter what artillery is against us. Have your way, God. Have your way. And in the morning when we rise... Give us Jesus. Have this world. Just give me Jesus. God, our help in ages past. Our hope for years to come. Our shelter from the stormy blast. And our eternal home. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. We give you thanks. You are great. And you are greatly to be praised. Bless your name. Bless your mighty name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We bless your name, O God. We praise you. We give you the thanks. Hallelujah. 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 Hallelujah.
We bless you, Father. Remind us during the week to love you with everything we have and to love one another. We bless you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.